I'll be going now, Harry. Professor? Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And this week we'll begin Goblet of Fire chapter by chapter. And to help us kick off the fourth book in the Harry Potter series, we're joined by one of our Slug Club patrons this week, Summer. Hi, Summer. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. And thanks for your support on Patreon. Let's get your fandom ID. Sure. So my favorite book, I'm bad at choosing. Favorite book is Prisoner of Azkaban or Deathly Hallows. Favorite movie is Prisoner of Azkaban or Deathly Hallows Part 1. My Hogwarts house is Gryffindor. My Patronus, I recently found out, is a gray squirrel. And my favorite character is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I might be the first person on MuggleCast, and it's a very unpopular opinion overall. Harry Potter is indeed my favorite character in the Harry Potter Aww. series. I love him. Thank you. I love him. And Sirius Black's a close second, but you know, he grows up in the horrible house that is the Dursleys and it really doesn't, it doesn't turn him into a terrible character at all. If anything, he has a horcrux living in him and he's still a good character at heart. And I think he's very funny in the books and in the movies, but even funnier in the books. And my favorite first chapter in Harry Potter, this is a great question. I chose Dudley Demented from Order of the Phoenix with the other minister as a close second. I know everyone loves that, but I love that Order of the Phoenix opening, getting another peek into Harry's uh, depressing world. Yeah. <laughs> another peek into Harry's depressing world. And fun fact about you, you also worked at the Harry Potter store in New York, right? Their flagship store. I did. What was that experience like? It was so fun. I worked there this past summer. I was actually at the Butterbeer Bar, um, and I absolutely loved it. I will say that I like the Butterbeer ice cream a whole lot more than the normal Butterbeer. And I ate a cup of it every shift, and I was known for that. <laughs> I would see how long I could go <laughs> without eating some, because, you know, food services is hard work, especially when it's busy every single day. So I loved it. Uh, I got 30% off at the store, so that was another great part. And it was so fun. The shifts would get long or I'd get tired. I would just stand there and I'd, they play the, the soundtrack in the background. And then that would sort of center me. And I'd love standing there listening to the music, even though it did get a little loud sometimes. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, I was surprised by how many people who worked there weren't actually fans. And I was slightly disappointed. Oh. So they'd be like, oh, you you actually like Harry Potter? And I was like, yeah, that's why I applied here. I listen to a Harry Potter podcast. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you don't listen to MuggleCast? <laughs> <laughs> listen, you need, to, you need to hijack the speakers and start playing our episodes. Yeah. Oh, I know it. I might have tried. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you convert anybody to a Potter fan? I think I tried, but they were... I tried. It's an uphill struggle. Harry Potter's actually over, Micah. Nobody cares about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know, fair. I was going to say, it, it's hard in New York. You got to get a job wherever you can. So people are out there being like, okay, that's fair. That makes sense. I'm applying at the Sabaro. I'm applying at the Harry Potter store. I'm applying at the Dwayne Reed. And the pay was good. <laughs> oh, 
my one coworker who was a, as big a fan as me was also named Andrew. So shout out to him. Oh, really? Okay. And also a Slytherin. So shout out. Are you telling us that Andrew worked undercover at the <laughs> Harry Potter store? I was trying to hijack the sound system to play Mukokas. <laughs> what, Sabaro wouldn't hire you? you had to... <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. And welcome to the show. We're excited to have you and get all your feedback today. Thank you. So we have a couple of brand new announcements before we continue. First of all, Micah, I think a lot of it, uh, listeners will be excited about this. Yeah, Quizage Live returns later on in October. We're really excited to bring this back. This was something we had a lot of fun with, particularly during the pandemic. But uh, it's something that uh, we're going to keep on doing as long as we can come up with trivia questions. And there are plenty of them out there. So we will be doing Quizage on October the 28th. More details to follow. And then we're planning on releasing this as a full episode on Halloween. So this Quizage Live will have a Halloween feel to it of sorts. We'll have questions about Wizarding World candy, as well as James and Lily, given everything that went down on Halloween all those years ago. Uh, But the main focus of it is an owl's edition. So study up on your charms, your potions, your transfiguration, and defense against the dark arts. And huge shout out to listener Nicole H., who provided these questions. Saved me a lot of work, uh, to be quite honest. So um, we really appreciate her sending these in. She's been a longtime listener of the show. Yeah, and so I we know listeners really like these uh, live Harry Potter trivia games that we put together. Everybody will be able to participate, so stay tuned for more details. But again, like Micah mentioned, this will be occurring on October 28th. It is free to play, and there will be prizes. Oh, yeah, there will. <laughs> Andrew gave me full reign of the budget to be able to go and get prizes. I don't remember talking about that, but all right, maybe Summer gave me too much butterbeer. I was just going to go with full-size candy bars like you do for Halloween. Yeah, that, that is true. Thank you, Costco, and your discounts. And one thing about the Quizich is if you do miss uh, the live stream, you can play at home later because that yes. will be released on Halloween as the episode. But no prizes if you play later. No, oh, yes. Fewer prizes. If you want the prizes, <laughs> the big, big prizes that we have plans for. The prize is playing, really at the end of the day. The prize is the friends that we made along the way. So stay tuned for more details, but clear your calendars now, October 28th for the live quizage. And we also have another cool announcement. So longtime listeners might remember that we used to do transcripts for this show. And we had Yes, a, I did. Micah led the transcripts team. <laughs> we had a lot of people working we. on the transcripts for us. They were amazing. Um, and then we got away from it because it was a lot of work. But now times have changed and there are great transcription tools that automate a lot of the process. And so we're excited to share that we are getting started again on transcripts and we're going to go back into our archive and get all the episodes that we haven't transcribed transcribed. And one exciting aspect of this announcement is that Eric's girlfriend, Meg, who is a MuggleCast listener herself, will be doing the transcripts for us. She's going to be looking through what the uh, bots uh, transcribe and making sure everything's up to snuff because they're not good with Harry Potter words. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I was gonna which, say they might have some some struggles with that. Yeah, uh, Muggle Cast comes out differently every time we say it. It's very fun to see. Um, but but yeah, the uh, the coolest thing about it is all the recent episodes of Muggle Cast will have transcripts first, so it's another new way to listen to or experience, let's say, the, the latest episodes. They'll be up uh, usually within a week of the episode coming out. So yeah, it's a fascinating thing. Transcripts are great. They also work much better in things with um, screen readers and other additional. It's just great to have transcripts and it's a really great way for the archive to archive all the amazing things we've said and done over the years. Yeah, on we are now show. fully accountable for everything we say. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's the one downside. Yeah, it's important for accessibility, as Eric was getting at. And Meg's just, as I said to you, Eric, the perfect person for this because she knows the show. She knows us. She knows Harry Potter unlike the bots so the craziest thing is that she's going to be transcribing our complimenting her in like a week's time (laughs) you know is the weirdest thing so the more we say nice she's going to blush and it's going to be a thing but yes we're very excited to bring meg on you know the reason that we can do this is because of support of listeners like summer and patreon we allowed we can fund you know this kind of work which is a lot of work it's hours and hours of work in the bots help but you know they can only do so much so we're very grateful um, to all of our listeners and hopefully people use these transcripts. And my favorite thing to do really with transcripts is to Google. If I'm like, what's that episode where we first said peace and love and what were we talking about? You know, <laughs> in five years, I'll have the answer when all the transcripts are complete. Cause I forget the origin of like that phrase, for instance, but it helps you like figure out kind of where it all came from. I will just shout out Meg though, because it is, a thankless, tedious job at times. So huge kudos to her in advance of taking on this project. Definitely. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, she's amazing. And speaking of Ringo Starr, Eric, you saw Ringo Starr the other day? I saw. I got <laughs> the t-shirt. Lo- oh, she's wearing a Peace and Love shirt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm very excited. Did you yell peace and love at the venue? Everyone was yelling peace and love at the venue. Really? Yeah, I mean the shirt like it's it's his whole thing now. I think ever since he stopped ever ever since he asked people to stop sending in fan mail to him because he's getting overwhelmed. That saying, maybe it was before then, that saying is just iconic. Yeah, he was great. You know what? 83 years old, he can wow. move. He can Dang. move. He can Good move. for him. Cool. Yeah. It was a great concert. His all-star band and on a serious note now, uh, since we, so last week we had our Gobble to Fire movie commentary. We actually had recorded that the week prior, as you may have heard at the top of the Gobble to Fire commentary. Michael Gambon passed away a little over a week ago. Uh, of course, he played Albus Dumbledore in movies three onward. And we just wanted to take a moment to reflect on his role in Harry Potter. I know we've we've jokingly maybe some of us more than others uh, talked about how, you know, there's always been a debate about who was the better Dumbledore, Richard Harris or Michael Gambon. But I've always felt like Michael Gambon was always my favorite Dumbledore. Um, I thought his, the way he played it was necessary, especially for the later films. I have a hard time picturing Richard Harris playing out the cave scene, for example. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've said this before, and I think I reiterated in the commentary, but movie six, Michael Gammon's Dumbledore is flawless, in my opinion. And and one of my favorite, the scene I actually get the most enjoyment out of watching him do is where they go and get Slughorn at the beginning uh, of the movie. Yeah, that is just so fun seeing Jim Broadbent, Michael Gammon and Dan Radcliffe uh, do those things and everything from the knitting patterns to just it's so Dumbledore and it's so perfect. And so I'm really grateful for him in general. And, you know, I hope that he rests in peace and his family finds comfort. But but yeah, that that's definitely a favorite uh, all time moment for me for 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 him in the films. Yeah, going off of that, the you just mentioned the cave scene. I actually just rewatched Half-Blood Prince um, with my boyfriend. And it was almost I find the cave scene almost hard to watch every time I watch the movies because, um, you know, Harry forcing him to drink that potion. It's just awful. It's yeah. awful in the books, yeah. too. And um, so that part's bad. But then when Harry gets taken under the water by the Fury and, and the whole fire spell scene is just incredible. Um, my mom's a huge Dumbledore fan and a huge Michael Gambon fan. And yeah, Half-Blood Prince is her favorite movie, probably because of Michael Gambon. Um, and also, not just because he passed, but because I feel this way anyway, I am... Um, I will, uh, I think, agree with Andrew in terms of I am a Dumbledore apologist, but um, I will defend his delivery of the infamous line in Goblet of Fire of, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? You can try. You can try defending it. You will (laughs) fail. I think in the books, in the books, I understand why he was cloned, but in the movie... Dumbledore knows that there's no way Harry's getting out of this. His name came out of the Goblet of Fire. It is mag- He is magically bound to participate in the Triwizard Tournament, and he is going to be in danger all year because of it. And so he is very stressed and angry at the situation. And I defend how he delivered that line because I think he knows exactly what is going to happen, which is Harry is once again in danger all year. So basically, you're like, everyone in this movie is shouting, why not Dumbledore too? <laughs> I mean, I kind of like he, he he's angry on Harry's behalf that Harry has been um, drawn into this. Well, and here's what I'll say as Potter fans, no matter how you feel about that line, it is an iconic moment in Potter history because Absolutely. The everyone shake has a touchdown. The scream heard around the world. <laughs> I will say my favorite was probably the Snape's memory sequence in Deathly Hallows. I mean, that was amazing. It was just the info dump there was incredible, of course, in the book, but in the movie as well. And I thought Michael Gammon played that really well. So that would be my choice, if not the cave stuff, because I I also thought that was very good. For me, I think first off, one of the things we have to take into consideration is that Michael Gammon was stepping into a role of a character that quite honestly, outside of the trio was the biggest role in the series. And that's obviously with no disrespect to Snape and and Alan Rickman's portrayal. But I think from a character standpoint, Dumbledore was probably the biggest outside of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And so I think it's tough to come into that in the third film. But I will say, I think he really turned me over time to really appreciate the way that he portrayed Dumbledore going off a lot of the points that were raised here. And I really loved him in the quote unquote King's Cross scene in Deathly Hallows part two with Daniel Radcliffe. I thought his delivery of some of Dumbledore's most iconic lines was just spot on. And you could tell like he really enjoyed that scene. I think he talked about it being one of his favorite scenes as well. So I think that, you know, he 
he became Dumbledore. I don't know that he started mm. out that way. But I think, at least for me, he became Dumbledore. I think that's a beautiful assessment. Yeah, I think that's great. I would say uh, a favorite moment that really sticks out to me is uh, the astronomy tower at the end of Half-Life I know, and I hate it because that's Dumbledore's death scene. And we're talking about Michael Yamin dying here, unfortunately. But I thought the way that he portrayed Dumbledore in that moment... um, talking Draco through what he's going through and trying to literally get Draco to like back away from the ledge and not do this to himself full on knowing he's about to die, right? This is the plan. It has been the plan all along. I thought that he played that perfectly when I read the book initially. The way that they chose to portray this in the movie is almost exactly the way I imagined it when reading the book. And it felt like one of those moments where across the board, not just Gambin, but everyone involved with the movie was completely in sync with the text and his his delivery of those lines and his mentoring of Draco, even though he knew he was about to die, was just spot on. Of course, uh, we're focused on his career with Harry Potter, but he was a legendary actor outside of the Harry Potter film. So rest in peace, Michael Gambon, and thanks for all of your contributions to the Harry Potter films. No easy way uh, to switch gears, but did want to mention that we oftentimes on the show will talk about special editions of the Harry Potter books that have been released, and we've talked about Mina Lima and the great work that they have done on the Harry Potter series, particularly, you know, the Harry Potter films, the Fantastic Beast films, but they are in the business of um, releasing illustrated editions of their own of the Harry Potter books. And Prisoner of Azkaban was just released on October 3rd. So wanted to just do a brief mention of that. There's nothing really more <laughs> to say, but I'm sure uh you know, seeing their take on things is always very cool. All right. Well, now let's jump one book ahead to Goblet of Fire because we are kicking off Goblet of Fire chapter by chapter today. And before we get into chapter one, just wanted to look back at the initial publication of the fourth book. It was originally published July 8th, 2000 in the US and the UK. This was the first book to be released simultaneously in both countries. There were midnight release parties, obviously in both countries, but also around the world. This was the first midnight release party that I went to. I posted um, a photo to the MuggleCast Instagram. I think we're going to repurpose that into a TBT coming up soon as well. Um, Anybody else attend the midnight book release for this one? I didn't. Nope. And I'm so sad that I didn't. Summer, not you either? Um, uh, Brace yourselves. I you weren't wasn't born, born yet. yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> this show is done. I, w- I got a little bit of a shock looking at the dock and seeing that was the date. I, <laughs> my mom was not even, I was not even a thought in my mom's brain. She oh my God. I was born about a year later on July 7th, actually. Oh, okay. So, so almost a year to the day. Yeah, which... Um, quick note on that. I also I always was a little sad that Harry's birthday wasn't on July seventh. So I thought seven seven would be a great birthday for him. Oh. I know it was yeah. on the thirty first because of the author's birthday and the end of July and all that. But I was always like, 
feel like he could have had my birthday. But yeah, I, I was not at the at the midnight premiere. You were very much not. Well, I no. was, and I had a great time as a millennial. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to recover from this. <laughs> July 8th was a Saturday, and um, it, this was, they purposely picked a Saturday so kids would be off from school. Obviously, it was in the summer, too, so that was helpful. But there was also no workday commitments. I think it's probably easier on parents as well to get their kids to a midnight release party if it was happening over the weekend. When was the last time each of us read Goblet of Fire? I, I think for me, it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a long time. So I was thinking about this. And I can pretty much with confidence say the last time I read Goblet of Fire was the last time we did the Goblet of Fire chapter by chapter, which <laughs> was in 2010. So it has been oh. 13 years since we have read and analyzed Goblet of Fire. Hey, that oh. is as long as Voldemort had to wait to kill Harry Potter in this chapter. You <laughs> might be a little rusty with this one. Uh, this is the one I'm so excited for this chapter by chapter. Yeah, me too. It. I, I always loved the fourth book. It's very comparable to three for me. I have a lot to thank Goblet of Fire for, but here's a fun fact about that. I also have something to not thank Goblet of Fire for. It was the first Harry Potter book I ever picked up, and I read just this chapter. I read just <laughs> this chapter. You know what? This is isolating. This is excluding of any general audience member when you and we'll go through this in the but i picked it up i didn't understand what the heck was going on and i put the book down and it was two more years before i was a harry potter fan but yeah goblet of fire it's it's funny because the way i read it i read this chapter now and it's a fantastic chapter it's really good but not only is harry not in it there you know wormtail is a code name and it's all about the villagers of little hangleton and great hangleton and the gossip in the town I was like what is this book even about where are the boy wizards <laughs> so so anyway it, it it's funny because i think that the departure what this book does well as it opens up is really brave bold new exciting trying new things good world building to everyone else's point um but yeah it shook me and i i put the book down for at least another year and a half uh, and it wasn't until the first movie ended up coming out that I saw what it was all about. Now, finally, let's get to Goblet of Fire chapter by chapter. And this is chapter one, The Riddle House. And we'll start, as always, with our seven word summary. Summer will kick things off. Here we go. Voldemort decides to plan a amazing <laughs> murder <laughs> <laughs> all right off to a good start <laughs> the most amazing murder in the fact mo the most amazing murder <laughs> so i am so excited to be kicking off goblet of fire i feel like i'm i'm entering my spooky season era right this is my favorite month we're starting chapter by chapter for my favorite book I've got my muggle cast beanie on. I'm here. I've got my oh. Duncan. Like, I'm just. You are living your in. best life. I am living my best life. This is wonderful. You're feeling all the peace and love. And spooks. <laughs> Andrew's like, peace and love. Please move on. Um, <laughs> Andrew, if, if we waste 60 more seconds, Andrew will pass out and have a stroke. It's good. It's good. He's like, shut up. But really getting into it. I want to highlight. It's pretty obvious. We all know this. But this is the first book since Sorcerer's Stone 
to open without Harry. And as a matter of fact, Sorcerer's Stone, Goblet of Fire, and Half-Blood Prince all do this to set the scene. I was wondering how J.K. Rowling's editors felt about that when they got the manuscript for Goblet of Fire. Like, oh, whoa, wait a second. Um, This is a Harry Potter series. You know, you're big, but I don't know if you're that big. You got to hook people from the beginning. Obviously, at this point, Harry Potter was very big. So maybe they felt like, okay, we'll we'll let her do what she wants. But I don't know. I that would just if I was an editor, I think that would give me pause. Like you can't open up a children's series with some grim chapter that doesn't involve Harry. Look, I'm proof. It turns people away. It really did. And I I Thank wanted you. those. This was worth Goblet of Fire was worth 23 points in Accelerated Reader if you read it. And I really wanted those points. I wouldn't have to read the rest of the quarter. I might be speaking like 1980s terms for people here, but I wanted the rest of those points. I wanted to like this book and I couldn't get into it because where the hell is Harry? Voldemort and Wormtail are both in it, which are both very recognizable names. Well, I guess I don't think they say Voldemort, but it's probably pretty obvious. My lord. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eric. It says four on the binding, so I feel like we can't keep defending now it does. that. Now it says four <laughs> on the binding. you yeah. read it first. But I think maybe <laughs> yeah, that that's made on the editors... Me. That's on me. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it made the editors a little more open to it versus, you know, when you read the first book and it's the Dursleys. I remember quickly yeah. losing interest and took me a couple tries to get through it. But, um, Andrew, that's a great point that, uh, you know, it's supposed to be a children's series and it is a very grim opening. So, um might have turned a few there people is a, away. There is a specific mention of Voldemort. I, there's a lot of my Lord, but there's a Lord Voldemort at least once. I'm just looking right Lord now. Voldemort. Yeah, look, okay. there's something to be said for starting in the middle of the action. That's good writing. Like the middle of this murder plot to get Harry is really good writing. I, I, re- I just read the chapter again. I love it. I will say this is great. It's one of the better chapters. The character of Frank, we're going to get through it. But yeah, the, the whole way that it opens. Is Harry absent though? Because right. he's kind of dreaming this. Yeah, we the... we learn at the end of the chapter that it was a dream. He's yeah, he is somehow connected to this, huh? Like by a Horcrux, yeah. Or <laughs> and it's so funny because there there are definitely a couple of important Horcrux mentions in this chapter, even though they're not directly mentioned. We hear about the events that led to two of Voldemort's Horcruxes being created in this chapter, which is super fascinating. Which two? We'll find out. They're in the course of the discussion. They'll be revealed. This uh, <laughs> might talk. be a bit of a uh, a hot take, but thinking back on it, to me, Sorcerer's Stone almost opens a bit with a casual vacancy vibe to it, just the way that the Dursleys are described. And this book opens up totally differently because to your point, you do get a lot of action. You get a murder in the very first chapter of Goblet of Fire. Three. Oh, yeah, fair. Three. Uh, oh, <laughs> justice, justice for, for Tom's parents, Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Jerk Weed Riddle. What I wanted to bring up is I think in past books, we talked about how there's so much recapping of what happened in the prior book, particularly with Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban. And it seems like, at least for the purposes of the first chapter, J.K. Rowling stayed away from that completely. Because I feel like if you are a reader that has been with her through the first three books, 
you don't want to get hit with that recap again right away. And I think by the time you get to the fourth book, it's really something that you shouldn't need. So sorry, Eric, that you started on the fourth book. But, you know, it's just, it gets old. Yeah. Well, also, by this point in time, we have to remember Harry Potter was a critical hit. I mean, it was a huge success even at this point. So that would have given her the freedom to be able to open the book this way. Maybe if it were half as successful as it was or even less, maybe she wouldn't have had that freedom and she would have had to do the info dump recap chapter, but she doesn't have to do it because Harry Potter is so ubiquitous and successful at this point. As a matter of fact, by this point, doesn't Warner Brothers already have the rights for the first three movies? By the time this was published, uh, the movies are filming, I think, you know, so that's that's kind of what also before you were born, Summer. (laughs) Don't keep reminding me. (laughs) Our point of focus from the start of this chapter is the damp derelict and unoccupied riddle house of little hangleton and of course as anyone who's read the prior three books we can immediately tag this as okay this has something to do with tom riddle so we already know about him eric you had an interesting headcanon dare i say about the ownership of the riddle house one of the things that we get in all of this world building apart from the history of you know the mansion that how it went through different owners is that it is currently owned by someone that does not inhabit it and the local townsfolk thinks that this person owns the mansion for tax reasons because that's the kind of thing muggles come up with when they have no explanation uh you know for <laughs> what's going on here but frank is also said to be receiving a regular payment to still be the groundskeeper here. And I'm thinking, first of all, who's the owner? And second of all, is Frank's payment something that's managed directly? Who owns the house? Is it Voldemort? If it's if Voldemort has a vested interest, like maybe this was like a, a one-day safe house, or if it's Lucius Malfoy, who knew some kind of connection to the house, it, it ultimately is like very interesting. I want to know who it is. And as far as regular payments, you could probably set up a spell to duplicate muggle money and just deliver it in like somebody's, you know, mailbox on a regular, like have it appear and repair. It's like, is Frank Bryce getting paid by like an, an inanimate spell? I'm just thinking about how this all works to keep it kind of going. Yeah. It also makes me wonder if Voldemort could have um, imperioed a muggle, a re- like found a wealthy muggle And just cast the imperious curse on them to force them to take ownership of this home, but never really want to visit it. So they're financially responsible for maintaining it so it doesn't get bulldozed or condemned or something like that. And as a result, that person is stuck paying Frank and any other staff who still live on the grounds. But now Voldemort has this safe haven that he can go to any time that he can count on being unoccupied. Right. I like that theory a lot. It definitely seems like something Voldemort would do. And that's really mm-hmm. um, inter- interesting way to think about it. And I also wonder if Voldemort, even though he doesn't like his dad or his grandparents at all because they're muggles, if he sort of feels like he has a right to the house because technically he's would be the heir to it. Um, even though his dad like didn't know he existed or wouldn't have actually left him the house, I believe. Um, so, you know, almost he would feel like he had a right to it because it belonged to his predecessors. 
Yeah, as much as he tries to like disown his predecessors, it's like, oh, but this is also my house. We know Voldemort likes to keep trophies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, my father's house, you know, I killed him and his parents and took his house. The thing that gets me about Imperius Curse is was Frank himself suffering from some level of commitment? There's a question in this chapter of why Frank remains at the house. And, you know, why would you? If you were in your 20s, your employer and his family got murdered and at the whole town, which is a very small town that likes to talk a lot, suspects you. Why would you stay? Why would you stay behind? And the question for me is it's talking about the boys that come and throw stones and break windows. Uh, it says the book says they knew that old Frank's devotion to the house and grounds amounted to almost an obsession. Uh And it also says that they rode their bike over lawns that Frank worked so hard to keep smooth. Listen, you're fighting a losing battle. Why would Frank still invest this much time in this place that's kind of a bad situation? Well, we're going to unpack Frank's character and background a little bit here, and we might be able to um, unearth some hints about why he might do this. Um, But I want to zoom out and think about the overall um, legend that seems to um, follow the Riddle House and exist in Little Hangleton. So just to kind of set the scene for the time and place, because we're talking about present day, this story taking place in 1994, but the events of this chapter actually cover events that transpired 50 years previously. So... 50 years before this, so around 1944, the uh, villagers of Little Hangleton all agree that a maid had entered the drawing room one morning at the Riddle House to find all three Riddles dead. Tom Riddle Sr., his parents, a.k.a. Voldemort's dad, and his grandparents. They're described as having their eyes wide open, being cold as ice still in their dinner things. It's a very bizarre sequence of murders because there's seemingly no reason for these people to be dead. It was the maid in the drawing room with the... <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a, it's like somebody, clue. right before the riddles died, there was a voice saying, Rosebud! You know, it's like such a mystery. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're all good. Also wanted to call out, uh, first Horcrux mention of the chapter, uh, Voldemort's murder of his father, Tom Riddle Sr., is where we get the ring horcrux. So the ring horcrux was created with this murder back in the mid-1940s. Yeah, I was curious. I'm sure it would have been mentioned if it had been, but um, was the dark mark not cast above the house? Um, Maybe it wasn't a thing yet. Like, is that something that Voldemort's supporters made up? Or I'm like, does Voldemort himself ever cast a dark mark? Or is it one of the Death Eaters when they um, murder someone? But I'm imagining it wasn't there because I think it would have been mentioned in the book. So I was curious why it wasn't there, why Voldemort didn't cast it. Or maybe that's um, that's below him to do that. And that's just what the Death Eaters do. It's a good question. I, I tend to think and agree with what you're saying that it just didn't exist yet. And even if it did, it would probably would be passed off as, oh, Pollution, you know, regular smog in the uh, strangely shaped pollution town of Little Hangleton. <laughs> That's a great point. Muggles are unwilling to believe anything could possibly be magical. One of the things that's really 
curious about this time frame too is it is going towards the end of the second world war and this ties a bit into probably what we're going to talk about with frank but that 1944 time period the fact that tom returns to his well he's not returning he's he's invading his father's and grandparents home to to murder them but going back to this whole idea of the house being a trophy I'm also wondering, is there a curse here of some sort on the Riddle home? Because it's not just this wealthy person that we hear about. The home has actually been owned by multiple people over time, but it's said that they don't stay very long. So it um, it makes me think of those scary kind of horror movies that you see where over time people just kind of move in and out because something keeps them um, from from staying there. Um, it's very honestly comparable to what happens with the defense against the dark arts position, right? People continuously cycle in and out. So I wonder, was this, um, would this have happened? I, I'm trying to think of the time frame with Tom Riddle, but is this another example of him being able to cast a curse of that sort this time on on the Riddle house? That's and so maybe it wasn't even intentional. It's just like once that occurred, it was a, a a curse on the house, or just the vibes were off in the house. Henceforth, maybe it had a funky <laughs> smell <vibes>. to it. <laughs> yeah, the vibes were sus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I love it because at the very least, the Riddle House is cursed just by association with what happened. Right, so. It's common knowledge that three people were murdered in this house. So you can assume that anyone who moved in there either knew about the murders when they chose to move in or they found out about them not long after they moved. Uh, to that's a good point. Uns- unsolved murders at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. So at the like, I can imagine that just it could carry a curse insofar as people just not being comfortable there. I mean, in real life, people have hard t- a hard time moving houses where people have died, right? You have to just dis- usually most states, at least here in the U.S., you have to disclose that kind of thing, especially if it was something violent like a murder, like what we're talking about here. And it can make it really hard to sell that kind of house. So there's definitely a stigma associated with the riddle house for sure you know maybe the subsequent owners just couldn't stand the gossipy nature of the small town people <laughs> maybe <laughs> well These people are unbearable they were above it <laughs> i'm yeah. glad that you bring up the villagers because it is noted that they do not waste their breath pretending to feel sad about the murder of the riddles um specifically Uh, They are described as elderly. Mr. and Mrs. Riddle had been rich, snobbish, and rude. And their grown-up son, Tom, had been, if anything, worse. I really love this as a comparison to the Dursleys. If we think about the opening chapter of Sorcerer's Stone, where we get that Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It's giving very similar energy. So I love the comparison between the Riddles and the Dursleys as being these upper class, rich, snobbish, uh, worst versions of muggles you could imagine. And the impact those families have on Harry and Voldemort, who in a lot of ways 
are very similar. In That's fact, a good connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I just love that because it's it's interesting. Harry would never think about going to murder the Dursleys, but you even have the same you have the same family structure. You have the two snobbish parents and their crappy son. Huh. Um so the fact that Harry doesn't do anything overly malicious to them is just another example of Harry making the opposite choices um to what Voldemort would do. And what's interesting about that too is Harry spends way more time with the Dursleys than Tom does with his family. Tom spends all of I don't know, like maybe an hour. Who knows? Like what was going on in that room? That would be a great adaptation for the uh, the TV mm-hmm. show. We don't really get that much insight into it, as far as I remember. But um, Harry is spending years with the Dursleys, and s- turns out better than Tom does, and doesn't want to kill them <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> well, as far as we know, I mean, I'm sure there were a couple of thoughts. Tom spends an hour. Is like I want to murder them. <laughs> One thing I did want to bring up. Talking about uh, Tom Riddle Sr., we don't know a whole lot about him, at least at this point, uh, and just the way that he's described being even worse than his parents. Uh, it raised the question as to why uh, Maropi was interested in him to begin with. And you know, we know that they're younger, so was it purely looks-based, or was what happened to Tom Riddle Sr.? Was that a result of what Maropi did to him? Like, does he become even worse than his parents because of being under this love potion for such a long period of time? Maybe he was the greatest guy in the world when they first met, but he becomes a bit of a you-know-what afterwards. Yeah, I I did find this description of Tom Riddle Sr. a little surprising because in my mind um even though we knew Moropi wasn't genuinely in love with him I in my mind I saw him as like the polite handsome man who lives near them and you know Moropi's infatuated with him and I and you know maybe she saw him being kind to the neighbors outside and it made her like him and everything so I was surprised to learn that um he wasn't necessarily a nice person or a polite person um so again whether or not she was just um obsessed with him purely based on looks. I think certainly that comes into it and they were similar ages. And we know that uh, part of the reason Maropi got with um, Tom Riddle senior was because sort of um, to spite her, her brother and her dad, the Gaunts, um, you know, who are very much pure blood. Um, and because she seemed to be very isolated and lived in a, had a horrible living situation. So I think any connection to the outside world, like a handsome boy who could distract her while she was living in that, um, horrible house, um, all led up to them or her giving the, the love potion. We talk a whole lot about how Voldemort Tom Riddle was doomed from the start because there's just something broken in the soul of a person conceived under the influence of a love potion. It, I mean, basically, Maropi roofied Tom Riddle Sr. into getting her pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to say that something happens to impact the soul of a child conceived through these events, what happens to the person who is assaulted in this case, Tom Riddle Sr. 
that's a great point. And it doesn't need to be that they really had any kind of relationship. If we're vilifying Maropi for what she did and calling it rape, which it was, um, then you can kind of just say that this person who descended from a long line of Slytherins, not to malign Slytherins, I promise that's not where I'm going from this, (laughs) did the ultimately most Slytherin thing and had the ambition to go after what she wanted. She wanted Tom Riddle Sr. in her bed and she got him. She reached out. She touched ambition. And so it's not that they necessarily had a long courtship or that they would have interacted at all. I think he was probably just the kind of stuck up snobbish rich person that two stuck up snobbish rich people have as their child. Raise them with their values, you know, a disdain for the local villagers and that Merope did just think he was cute. She didn't really have a point of reference looking at her own family members, and uh, she went for it. Laura, going back to what you brought up before, kind of comparing Harry and Tom in these moments, Tom makes the conscious choice to go and really eliminate his bloodline altogether, right? Specifically his father. I don't know how much he really cares about his grandparents, but I would assume when he went there, the target was his father. And you think about Harry and how much Harry would give just to be able to have family, to have his father, to have his grandparents. It's two completely um, you know, opposite ends of the coin. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. The other element here about uh, killing all the family, when you said, Micah, just now that maybe just his dad was the target for Voldemort, what surely would have transpired while the Riddle seniors were having dinner is that Voldemort would have come and said, Dad, why did you abandon my mom? And the dad would have been like, I don't even remember, dude. She was like a witch or something. And she coerced me into this crazy thing. And Voldemort would be so embarrassed, so shocked, so vulnerable to find out that his mom had hoodwinked a muggle that he could leave no survivors. He could not let anyone know how embarrassing and how shameful he must have felt in that moment. And so everyone died because the because he thought this whole time that Tom Riddle just wasn't a good dad, that he wasn't there because he had chosen to abandon his kid. He never chose to have the kid, and that's a twist. And I can't see Voldemort of any age being emotionally able to really wrestle with what that all means. He would have just killed everyone on sight and left. I agree with you, but I also think Voldemort went here with the intention of killing them and creating the ring horcrux. Yeah, now I am really curious about whether he sort of con- whether he confronted his father and they had a whole conversation. I think that would be super interesting to see maybe in the TV show or if he just marched in there and murdered them. Cuz at uh, I at first I believe he just marched in there and murdered them. But yeah. now I'm very curious about whether he took the opportunity to talk to his father, if he would even want to, because we all know how, what, what Voldemort thinks about muggles, you know. It right. makes me think of, you know, when they talk about Bellatrix, they say she likes to play with her food before Play with her food. <laughs> I don't know that Voldemort is like that. Voldemort's very like business. No, but he would have had righteous anger. The thing about that is they all had look of horror on their face. And you, if somebody walks in and brandishes a wand and says a Vatican, you don't have time to have a look of heart. You're like, who's this guy? And also what's look of surprise? Maybe if he had just he talked to them, he shouted at them. He said, I'm going to kill you. And that's why they look shocked when they died. 
There was an entire combo. Do you think he walked in and went, hello, father? And then Comberville <laughs> yes. Sr. was like, hello, hello father. Who are you? Oh, my God. <laughs> he probably looks just like him, to be honest. Yeah. I, be- I bet they knew immediately who Voldemort was. It's a good call. Well, um, like we see happening in society around major murder cases that are kind of like you know, very highly present uh, in the in the local news cycles um, or even on social media, um, if we think about the way things play out today. Um, little Hangletons in 1944 gathered in the village pub to gossip and spread rumors about this. Very interesting note that the village pub is called The Hanged Man. I thought that the pub could easily be a reflection of the topic of discussion, right? Frank Bryce is a hanged man in the court of public opinion. All of these villagers, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they took a little bit of convincing early on. We see that. But once the consensus is out there, Frank did it. And <laughs> there's plenty of examples in um, present day society that we could point to that are similar to what happens to Frank here. Frank has been canceled. <laughs> exactly. Frank's been canceled. And when enough people repeat something, it becomes true, right? Maybe with a name like the hanged man, they all feel encouraged to uh, show up there and gossip about a lot of people all the time, especially when the mead is flowing. I get the impression this is the only pub. Like Little Hangleton sounds like a very small town. And yeah. <laughs> so I think when I imagine a small town like this, they have a church. They have the town pub and they have like a football pitch. And those are the things that their social culture revolves around. So the hanged man is where all of the little Hangletons go to discuss town affairs. And it's 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 also probably not news to a lot of our listeners that pubs over in the UK and Ireland have very fun names. Yeah. Yeah. And I did a little Googling. And maybe J.K. Rowling was actually a fan of the Hanged Man's Pub in Kildare, Ireland. Uh, Rated 4.6 out of 5 stars on Google Maps. So people seem to really enjoy it. And it looks like a great little pub. This whole small town discourse is giving Broadchurch. I know, right? I didn't think about that. But Eric, you also had a good point about what the name of this pub could refer to. For anyone who's familiar with tarot, uh, that's been getting more of a shout out lately as we talk about prophecies, divination, all these other kinds of cool uh, branches of magic. The Hangman Tarot card, it's the 12th card in the Major Arcana. It depicts a man suspended upside down from a living world tree, bound by his right foot while his left foot remains free. The Hanging Man is not in distress, as evidenced by his serene expression, signifying he has chosen this position willingly. Again, kind of questions why Frank Bryce would stay around. And if you get this card in tarot and it's not reversed, it means wisdom, circumspection, discernment, trials, sacrifice, intuition, and divination and prophecy. So it's just a great friggin' name. Yeah, there are so many layers to it. Well, we were just, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about the imagery that is evoked by the name of this pub, The Hanged Man. We get to hear now about Frank becoming The Hanged Man. Uh, And I love this imagery of it being the little Hangletons 
in the hanged man who are socially hanging Frank. Like, there's just a lot to it. I love uh, all the imagery and the alliteration there. Um, But the riddles cook uh, did eventually arrive at the pub and announced that the riddles gardener, Frank Bryce, who we spend uh, most of the chapter with, uh, had been arrested for the murders. So this is where we're going to talk about Frank. We learn that Frank had had a, quote, hard war, and that he's also nearing his 77th birthday in 1994, meaning that he was born somewhere around 1917. When you look at the list of various war conflicts that Great Britain was involved in, there, there are a few of them that Frank could have fought in. But World War II feels like the most obvious choice based on the timing and also based on the fact that we know World War II is it's a it's a point in time that the author draws a lot of comparisons and allusions from for writing these books. So it's interesting to imagine Frank fighting in World War II when we know that the Dumbledore-Grindelwald conflict is happening at exactly the same time, makes me wonder where Frank might have been stationed, what, if any, contact he might have had with the wizarding conflict unknowingly. My question with all of this, and, and this is like a larger question, every single time that we get to criminal acts is, where's the evidence that Frank is responsible in the first place for this. Did Voldemort, Tom Riddle set him up in some way? We never hear about that. But why was Frank the choice of anybody to blame for these murders just because he's the weird guy living in the shack on the property? Who had access to it because there is no sign of anybody of breaking forced in. Entry. I think yeah. one of the townspeople says that. So, But what about it's the not, people already in the case, house? Though. I agree with you, Micah, though. It's not a good case. It's not a good argument, but what about they the just maid have nobody else. Or the cook. Well, yeah, there were no charges. Oh, yeah, the maid got in somehow. Frank was not, you know, really arrested. He was questioned. And I think it's just, it's the coolest thing because this chapter really is about, in some ways, the way muggles deal with magic being in their midst. None of them know magic as a thing. But later when Frank, like, hears Voldemort speaking parcel tongue, he's 100% right in his intuition, having never experienced magic before, that that's what's happening. It's happening in front of him. But in confronted with the magic of these people were killed, a whole team of muggles, like the coroner and stuff from probably Big Hangleton, um, are unable to come up with anything. And they're looking at these magically killed corpses and can't possibly discern what happened. It's just like their best guess is the only thing any of these people are going to get to because they're not magical. They can't do a spell reversal or tr- yeah. magic always leaves traces. These muggles can only guess at it. And I think a lot of this in terms of Frank being the hanged man here comes down to scapegoating. And it's so interesting to see this playing out in the muggle world because we see it happen a whole lot in the wizarding world. We just finished reading a book where Sirius Black was like the ultimate scapegoat, even though he didn't do anything wrong. And people give excuses about Frank being kind of already 
set up for failure here. They say things about him like the war turned him funny. He always had a nasty look about him. I wouldn't want to get on his wrong side. So it really doesn't take much for the villagers to convince themselves that Frank is indeed the culprit. But it's also them finding something Mm -hmm. to attach to that gives them the reason to be able to put the blame at his feet. And Eric, you mentioned this earlier. This could be this time frame's version of of cancel culture. That's essentially what is happening to Frank Bryce in this moment. It also seems to be a bit of a commentary, however brief it is, on the effects of war and PTSD and how society, you know, not to say we've come a long way with respect to this, because I still think there's a lot in current day that we need to do. But at that time, how conditions of war affected people and how it was perceived by the rest of the community, the rest of society, it's very easy for them to place blame at the feet of Frank. And we see this in other characters too, right? And actually one in this book in Mad-Eye Moody, who has also kind of gone through the Wizarding oh. Wars and has himself lost his leg. And Frank is somebody who complains when he gets up about pain in his leg. Cormoran Strike is another character who went through the Afghan war who lost his leg. And so I wonder if there's like a through line here in some of these characters um, that J.K. Rowling wrote. Um, it, it's very clearly PTSD that he suffers from. He can't have had loud noises. He doesn't like people very much in this antisocial behavior, which is he's the horrors of war for crying out loud, um, are given as evidence to say that he did it. This was definitely um, reminding me of Corman strike as well. While I was rereading this chapter, it almost felt like a chapter out of one of those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he's kept himself quite isolated. Um, his workplace and his home are on the same grounds. He lives in a little cottage on the ground, and he tends to the garden. So um, if he ever does venture out into the town and you know people aren't the nicest to him, it gives him all the more reason to just stay isolated, and then it gives all the townspeople more time to gossip and make up stories about him. And we see this happen with Harry, too, right after his name comes out of the Goblet of Fire. And then you could probably even extend it a bit into Order of the Phoenix, where you know, he is treated as, in many ways, as public enemy number one. And it's all because of the gossip and the talk that is associated with him becoming a Triwizard Champion and then becoming, um, you know, a target of the ministry later on in the series. So it's just a nice kind of connecting the threads of sorts. Because I'm not sure what book we're supposed to connect Goblet of Fire to since it's right. <laughs> Whichever one you want, it's a wild card. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild card. It's a free space on the yeah, bingo. Right. This is why I love Goblet of Fire because it it's not connected to any other specific book. It's connected to all of them because Goblet of Fire is the mantelpiece of the series, right? And it is so dependent. All of this setup is so dependent on what comes in books one through three. We have to have the setup from those books for any of this to make sense. But then Goblet of Fire also provides a lot of the necessary setup for the remaining three books in the series. So it's just perfection. Uh, I will die on that hill. Laura, I didn't realize how much you loved Goblet of Fire. I adore 
this story. I feel like it's not a very common favorite book. She has a tattoo. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but I should probably get one. Um, <laughs> but while we're talking about Little Hangleton, let's talk about Great Hangleton. So it becomes clear that uh, it's really the police force of Great Hangleton that covers Little Hangleton. I guess they don't have their own police. Um Frank is over in neighboring Great Hangleton insisting that he didn't do anything um, and that the only person he had seen near the Riddle's house on the day of their deaths had been a dark haired, pale teenage boy. I wonder James who Potter? that could dun, be. Dun, dun, dun. James Potter? Snape? Ultimately, as we've already established, Frank gets released from police custody because the autopsies of the riddles confirm that the cause of their death is unexplainable. The only thing that um, the coroner notes is that they all have looks of terror on their faces. And there's this great line uh, saying something along the lines of, you know, have you ever heard of a person being scared to death? And that's the only um, explanation that anyone can give. And there's just no real way of proving that Frank could have scared them to death. Um, <laughs> but it, it is interesting. You have a good point here, Summer, about um, the muggle perspective of the killing curse. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to get that perspective because um, we get a lot of the wizarding side of the Vatican curse, you know, the big green spell and all of that. So I thought it was very interesting to see the muggle side where it was, you can't tell at all what it is. And it's sort of, it's not an inside joke, but it's definitely, you have to be on the inside of being a part of the wizarding world to know what happened here. And I'm curious if there was ever, you know, a wizard or a magical, uh, someone from the magical community who lived in, in great Hangleton, if they would have caught on, I think they would have, um, but yeah, it was interesting to get the muggle perspective and how it was just a great mystery. You know, they, they couldn't have said that they were, you know, something that wouldn't necessarily show on the outside, like they, they were all poisoned or something, but they couldn't find that on the inside either. So, And it is interesting, too, because you would think that the Department of Magical Law Enforcement would know. Mm, or that- get summoned or... That Avada Kedavra was cursed, was cast here. I mean, they know, we know from all the letters Harry gets that they know when magic is performed, in, you know, in front of and around muggles. Mm, great point. So it raises the question what was the ministry involvement here? Or was the ministry so bogged down by everything going on with the Grindelwald conflict at the time? that they just didn't have the resources to address any of this. And they kind of let it uh, skate on by without really investigating anything. We can uh, we can fast forward now after we've spent some time in the past to 1994, where Frank Bryce awakens due to his bad leg, which we've already established. And when he goes to make himself some tea, he notices some lights glimmering in the upper windows of the Riddle House, and he has had it with these kids on his lawn. <laughs> get off my get lawn. Off my yeah. lawn. You kids, get off my lawn. So he still has the key to get into the Riddle House. He still remembers the layout. He lets himself in, sneaks upstairs. And he pretty quickly finds the source of the light. It's a lit fireplace in one of the rooms inside of which were two men. 
And he overhears conversation between some man that he can't see with kind of a croaky, high-pitched voice and someone named Wormtail. Some baby man. Baby man. (laughs) We're going to start calling Voldemort baby man. (laughs) Man child. Something like that. Uh, Honestly, at this point in time, at least based on how the movies depict him, he looks like it's like a fetus, like fetus mort. Like, yeah. (laughs) Fetus mort. Very disturbing. Not an attractive episode title. Crossed (laughs) my mind for a second. Nobody's going to hit play on that one. I have an option for you coming up. Okay. So we hear here that Wormtail is feeding Voldemort with a bottle. So weird. Aw. Does is anyone else like get a maternal instinct from this? This is really no. cute. Yeah. <laughs> but Voldemort is talking to Wormtail about how he needs to milk Nagini. And I know that he's talking about her venom, right? So Voldemort is drinking so. her venom out of a bottle. Right. And so this led me down the road of wondering if Peter Pettigrew is in fact a certified snake milker because this is an actual job. It's true that these people exist out in the world and a snake milker is a type of herpetologist, which is basically a type of zoologist. And people who work in this highly specialized area extract venom from snakes and other reptiles, which produce venom that could cause illness and death. They're specially trained in handling these sensitive and protective animal protected animals, which often have legal protection. So to become a snake milker, it requires a lot of education. And there's ultimately two main purposes for the extraction of venom. It's either used for research or it's used to create anti-venom when people get bit by snakes to heal them. So I'm just wondering when Pettigrew learned how to do this. I mean, it's you know, like, does he just tell Nagini to like roll over? Like, and this is our introduction <laughs> to Nagini too, right? Like, the first Nagini, time we've ever seen her. Yes. And this is the, di- well, I don't want to spoil that, but yeah. Further abuse of her in this manner, actually. Depending depending on what Voldemort, like what control he has over snakes, talking to snakes is different, but controlling them, uh, he could just make her put up with it and not kill Pettigrew when Pettigrew does it I can just imagine the sheer terror Pettigrew must feel every time he has to milk her fangs and like hold her head down whatever 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 that is but Mike I do want to say thank you especially on behalf of Meg who loves uh snakes and animals to like clear that up this whole thing of it's time to milk Nagini like I didn't know what that meant for the longest time the fact that this is a real process with real snakes it's a real thing is because otherwise it's mildly concerning what this means like I don't know yeah well, was was that the episode title you were suggesting? Certified Snake Milker? Or is it still coming up? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it works well. <laughs> well, poor Frank is standing here at the doorway listening to this conversation. It's clear that this warm tail and this, you know, uh, man who is restricted from view at the moment um, are talking about trying to plan some kind of murder but they're talking about waiting until after the Quidditch World Cup and ministry involvement and using some boy named Harry Potter in order to achieve this plot that the men have in mind. 
Yeah. And, and real quick, I, I know you've talked about it on the show before, I think in regards to the opening of Half-Blood Prince where Snape and is calling Pettigrew Wormtail, but why the heck is Voldemort calling Pettigrew by his marauder's name? Um, I always thought that was a little weird and, you know, Pettigrew is a perfectly good Death Eater Voldemort sidekick last name. <laughs> but <laughs> so I think it's kind of weird that he calls him by the the Marauder's name, because, you know, before Pettigrew turned evil, the Marauder's name is quite special during his time at Hogwarts. So I found yeah. that a little strange. That's a great point, uh, especially because it's isolating to readers who didn't read the third book, because who the hell is Wormtail? At least Pettigrew's a proper last surname. Maybe Frank Bryce will confuse it with Miss Pettigrew, who, you know, is a nice person. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's possible also that Voldemort calls Wormtail this because he knows that Wormtail is the name that Peter had yeah. with his friends who he betrayed. And mm. so this whole through line where Voldemort says to Peter in this chapter, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have anywhere else to go and you're not loyal, you're scared and cowardly, et cetera, et cetera. He calls him Wormtail and he's Wormtail to all the Death Eaters probably as another way of just twisting the screw on Peter's loyalty, which is worth garbage. So maybe he called, maybe Voldemort calls him that as a further form of torture. Yeah, I mean, it could also be that it, they used it as a code name, essentially, for, again, back in the 80s when Peter was acting, he was a double agent, right? And he probably didn't want to have Death Eaters openly using the name Peter Pettigrew, because of the events at the time, it would com mm, potentially compromise his position. So it, it could great. be that's why they were using it. Um, but Eric, I want to talk about uh, Peter's cowardice here, because obviously Voldemort's plan involves Harry. But Peter starts trying to convince him that another wizard could do. They don't need to use Harry Potter for this. It's going to be a lot harder to get close to Harry. They could arrive at the conclusion that we get in the summer following this book much sooner if they just went with another wizard. Um, and he says things like, my lord, I do not say this out of concern for the boy. The boy is nothing to me. But is that true? No. <laughs> It's, I mean, two things I think. One, Pettigrew might on some level be aware that he owes Harry a life debt. He might on some level. It's uncommon. It's unknown how common life, the idea of life debts is because Dumbledore in the previous book said eh, it's deep magic. So who knows who knows the deep magic? But the thing I think is more likely is that Pettigrew is scared of just having to confront Harry again, be in the same space as Harry again, because he barely escaped the last time that he was with him. Maybe he's even, here's another thought, maybe he's even more terrified of what Ron would do to him. Because Harry is bound to be seen next to Ron whenever they go for Harry. And everyone at Hogwarts, Pettigrew just escaped this horrible situation where he was almost, you know, everything. And so he doesn't want to deal with, of course he's scared. Mm -hmm. And you would have to confront Presumably, Remus and Sirius again. Oh, to get to Harry. Mm, Absolutely. Right. There's another layer of protection now that wasn't there before. Uh, there's something that it wasn't there before. And it's interesting, too, because it makes me wonder, what is Voldemort's level of awareness about the events 
that transpired at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. Because Harry ultimately made the choice not to kill Peter, right? They could have done it. Remus and Sirius were prepared to do it. Harry made the choice not to, and that directly led to Peter being able to escape. Dumbledore has that great line at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban where he says, you know, I doubt that Voldemort loves the idea of his servant being indebted to Harry Potter. Yeah. Right. I, I but I think... wonder at this point, does Voldemort know? And is that why Peter is so nervous? Because he's like, oh, no, he's going to find out. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you certainly see that Voldemort has, even in this form, a certain level of legitimacy that he's using to he can sense when Pettigrew is not telling the truth. So I don't know if he can read his mind completely, but I would assume at this point he doesn't know about the debt owed to Harry. Maybe he finds out later on, or maybe he never finds out. He underestimates the reasons behind how Pettigrew is feeling. So he insults him, he knows he's weak, he knows he's cowardice, but he doesn't look further. I, I like to believe Voldemort doesn't know about the life debt and never finds out. Because otherwise... At he here he needs Pettigrew to survive and could not get by without him. But it, by the time it, uh, Malfoy Manor comes up in book seven, he would have killed Pettigrew long before if he knew that Harry that he still owed Harry one. The other thing that really comes across in this whole exchange is you get to see how truly vicious Voldemort is. Like we've seen a lot of the Tom Riddle side of him, which you know is a little bit more polished. There's an attractive side there. Whereas with Voldemort, he's just a complete you know what to Pettigrew. And Pettigrew is there for it. Like he could easily just leave him on the chair and go run off into the night and he chooses to stay. Mm -hmm. Well, and it almost seems for a second like Pettigrew might be trying to massage the process so that he can do exactly that, Micah, because he's like, give me just a couple days. I will go find a suitable wizard and come right back to you. And Voldemort's like, okay, well, you're the one who's responsible for milking Nagini. You're the one who's responsible for feeding me. If you leave me for two days, I'll die. So no. <laughs> I think he Voldemort would send Nagini with him. Or if he tried yeah. to escape, would, would send yeah. Nagini right after him. What if he put baby Voldemort in a backpack and just... Oh, that'd be cute. <laughs> oh, a little, like a little, swaddled a little him? Baby yeah. Beyond. <laughs> Somebody do the AI In a stroller. Art, in a covered stroller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Micah, you have a great call out, um, uh, specifically relevant to this moment where Wormtail is reunited with Voldemort. Yeah. It's the um, prophecy. About Trelawney's prophecy. Yeah. It's it's the prophecy coming true. And to the point of what we were talking about earlier with this first chapter, if you did read Prisoner of Azkaban and you heard the prophecy, you're getting rewarded right in the first chapter of Goblet of Fire with Wormtail and Voldemort being reunited with each other. We also get some pretty heavy-handed hints about the ritual to come at the end of the book. I had forgotten about some of these. Yeah. Um, so Voldemort says, I have my reasons for using the boys. I have already explained to you, and I will use no other. Yeah, so this is referring to the flesh, blood, and bone at the end of this um, book, where Voldemort uh, gets a human body again, and he needs 
a human's blood um, to do that. So he, as far as I'm aware, he could have used anyone's, but he chooses Harry's because um, he wants the protection of that and the power of that. And just because Voldemort's a little crazy. So are we to believe that he could have had a human body much quicker if he just used anyone else's blood? He could have had a human body like today, <laughs> but he waits a whole year so he could get hit. That was the impression I was getting. Yeah, yeah that's what Pettigrew says. Past a certain point, yes. I think that when Pettigrew found him, he was still like dust, basically. Yeah. Um, but through the combination of Magini and the milking, and that he could get one today. But he probably he might not have been able to get one two weeks ago, though. No, I agree. He's he's crazy, and it's Voldemort's ego. He's like, I will get Harry. I want mm, this. Yeah. You know what? Like he's mine. We will wait for him. The boy who lived. Now, this is my other favorite. Voldemort says to Wormtail, I will allow you to perform an essential task for me, one that many of my followers would give their right hands to oh, perform. Oh, <laughs> I was way on the nose. <laughs> yeah, way on the nose. I picture Voldemort rolling his little baby body over to the camera and staring right into it. <laughs> Just y'all wait. He did like the... he. He broke the fourth wall, like in an episode of wow. The Office. <laughs> I want to apologize to Voldemort, too, for just using the phrase on the nose right there. I know that's triggering to you. So oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. was unintentional. My guy, I'm sorry. He also says, I'm not asking you to do it alone. By that time, my faithful servant will have rejoined us. And at this stage, that term, my faithful servant, could refer to a few different people. Right, Micah? Totally. Yeah, there was a lot of theorizing back in the day about who this faithful servant was or was going to be, and it could have been anybody from Barty Crouch Jr., who we'll meet a little bit later on in this book, Snape, very much a popular opinion, and then also Karkaroff, who we learn is a former Death Eater once we meet him a little bit later on in this book as well, so there was a lot of theorizing going on. That was a, a fun time to be uh, a Harry Potter book fan. Um, but you always had to read between the lines uh, with these types of uh, comments that were made by different characters. Yeah. Or if you take Cursed Child as canon, Cedric Diggory. <laughs> <laughs> so do we think it is Barty Crouch Jr.? Is that who he's referring to? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, this is where we get the Bertha Jorkins name drop. We learned that Peter uh, ended up coming across her somehow at an inn they were staying at, uh, which is an interesting series of events, given that Bertha was a ministry employee and she knows she would know that Peter Pettigrew is supposed to be dead. So obviously, from the moment she came across Peter, she was marked. She was already dead. There was no way she was going to survive this. Um, but Voldemort alludes to information that she gave that allowed him to hatch their plan. I think that the information he's referring to is about the Triwizard Tournament. I agree. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. And that'll be a great cover-up for getting Harry to the graveyard. Right. There's so many questions, too, for me that now come into play with Nagini being a horcrux and her also being milked for the purposes of kind of bringing Voldemort or, or at least sustaining him until he's fully brought back to life. Because, number one, she's now a horcrux. 
And number two, we know from the Fantastic Beast series that she's a maledictus. So is there, she's cursed in and of herself. There's a lot I'm sure that we could dive into in terms of how Nagini is being treated by Voldemort, given what we do know uh, about her. Um, But do all those things in terms of the blood and the cursed nature of her blood kind of invigorate Voldemort in a way? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We mentioned uh, also the memory charm, Peter muttering something about that. And I thought that was interesting because it also basically confirms that Wormtail doesn't know what Voldemort is truly doing. Certainly not what it takes to create a Horcrux. If he's suggesting something as measly as a memory charm, no, we got to do something much greater. It also shows he's kind of stupid, too, because if you just put a memory charm on her, presumably there are witches and wizards back at the ministry who could easily unravel it. And then all of a sudden, and I think Voldemort actually says this, they're going to know things that they shouldn't know or that he can't afford for them to know. So it just shows you, I don't know, maybe Wormtail is just in the moment. He's very like overwhelmed by everything that's going on and he can't think straight, but yeah. Yeah. I think the thing is, Wormtail is absolutely a baddie. He, and not in a good way. Like, you can be a baddie in a good way, but he is not a baddie in a good way. He's, he's a baddie in a, in a very evasive, sneaky way. He doesn't want to get his own hands dirty. Right. So he's responsible for the Potter's death, but he didn't directly kill them. Right. And he doesn't have the stomach to be close to violent activity, it seems. Mm -hmm. So while he was perfectly happy to hand the Potters over to Voldemort, while he was perfectly happy to hand Bertha Jorkins over to Voldemort, he doesn't want to have to uh, witness any murder, right? And it is so interesting as we're talking about the death of Bertha Jorkins, the creation of Nagini as a Horcrux. We know that she is the last Horcrux that he created. So the timing of this is super interesting that Voldemort creates his seventh and final Horcrux somewhere between book three and book four. We just don't know it at this stage as readers. Go ahead. I found that very interesting, too. Like I, in my mind, I was always like, oh, they were all created before um, he came to murder the Potters and, and Harry overpowered him, baby Harry overpowered, overpowered him. So I found that very interesting too, that he gets a body again and then he wants to make another Horcrux, even though he's already so um, struggling to survive so much. Yeah, no, it's it's a great call out because I had forgotten about the timing of this too until I read the chapter and I was like, oh my God, like without even knowing it, we get direct descriptions of the creation of two Horcruxes in this yeah. chapter, which which is yeah. really, really cool. Uh, well, Frank is not interested in hanging around at this point. He <laughs> decides for the first time in 50 years okay, maybe I can trust the police with this one thing. So I'm going to make a break for it and go get the police involved. But before he can do that, Nagini is slithering towards him down the hallway. And I'm calling her Nagini the Narc. Nagini the Narc. There's a a title. There's an episode. (laughs) There we go. We found it. Nagini the Narc tells Voldemort that Frank is outside the door. 
Oof. Is she a narc or is she a snake narc, aka snark? Oh, Nagini the snark. I love that. Nagini the snark. And again, this is another case where it's similar to Bertha Jorkins. Frank is already dead, right? He doesn't die for a few more minutes. Voldemort yeah. invites him in to the room. They converse for a few minutes, but it is so clear that it is effectively lights out for Frank. And I loved the description from Frank's point of view of Voldemort performing the killing curse on him because Voldemort's current physical state is so horrifying that it receives no description. We just read about Frank being so horrified looking at him that he's screaming. So Frank is so horrified at the sight of Voldemort that he is screaming right as Voldemort casts the killing curse. Frank, of course, has no point of reference for the killing curse, so he doesn't even catch what it is before he's um, unfortunately dead on the floor. Yeah, and it made me wonder, how is this version of Voldemort strong enough, number one, to use a wand, and number two, to cast the killing curse? Because we know that it does take a tremendous amount of energy. It does affect you. It rips your soul. So it seems like Voldemort in such a weakened state to be able to do this, uh, he must be pure evil. There, There's just no yeah, other way yeah. around That was it. exactly the phrase I was thinking in my head when you're talking. It's like pure evil. He's got to be pure evil. Also, I assume it gets easier the more times you do it, which is a sad thought. Yeah, maybe it doesn't take Voldemort yeah. as much uh, power as it would take. Well, it's like how Harry with the Patronus is like, you know, sometimes by the end of it, he just expect a Patronum and it's like immediately this whole thing. But like it took him some. Yeah. Another day, another Horcrux. Another day, <laughs> another Horcrux. <laughs> and... Well, and Voldemort's God. soul is like irreparably damaged at this point, yeah, right? Because he's created yeah. seven Horcruxes at this point. His soul is just ripped to pieces, so it it probably doesn't cost him much of anything to do this. But I'm very interested in how something like this might be portrayed in the TV show. And I really hope that the first episode of the Goblet of Fire season really focuses on this chapter. Because as we talked about with the movie commentary, we didn't get any of this extra context, which really adds to the mystery of this book. I was just going to connect the threads one final time here uh, within the same chapter, actually, because it's coming full circle, right? Voldemort kills his father and his grandparents in this house. Frank is blamed for it. And then at the end of this chapter, it's Frank who is killed in the Riddle House in exactly the same way. And exactly, oh, and exactly- the same facial reactions, too, right? Oh, man. What are the locals going to say about that? Although. Is the maid yeah, who are they going to blame? <laughs> yeah, no, I think... Or do you think Nagini just eats them? Yeah, yeah Nagini probably eats them. Oh, yeah, probably. Nagini dinner, you know. <laughs> that's that's her girl dinner. Girl dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, no. <laughs> Way to stay relevant, Laura. <laughs> With seemingly ranch. Oh, my God. <laughs> Swifties so, will understand that. I reference. got the reference, Andrew. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. okay. So... This chapter ends with revisiting the hero of the series with noting that 200 miles or so away, Harry Potter wakes up with a start, implying that he has witnessed the events of this chapter in his dreams. 
Hmm. Speaking of horcruxes, it's almost like there's a connection here. Yeah. <laughs> almost. We get a th- we actually we don't know it, but this is the third horcrux that gets mentioned in right. this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Man. The difference between what Harry has dreamt before and what he's presumably quote dreaming now is that it's a window into the present. So Voldemort is, or Harry is basically astral projecting. Harry is inhabiting the like he's inhabiting Voldemort. The Horcrux is traveling to connect and touch off of its older. This is basically this comes up bigger in book five when Harry is able to witness intimately conversations that Voldemort is having with his Death Eaters. Uh, that's exactly what this is. The difference is Harry is not conscious and yet when this happens, but it's like I think Harry's uh, unconscious mind is is having this link and because the, the reason this is happening for the first time is that Voldemort's getting stronger. So Voldemort is more of a person and the brain patterns can relate. It's, it's basically just this thing, this magical special power that Harry has is just turning on and it's extremely exciting and it's not touched on the rest of this entire book, but it's amazing what's coming. Like, the idea that that happens in the twixt between these first two chapters of book four shows that J.K. Rowling also knew exactly where she was going with this. And it's heating up. It's amazing. It's yeah, I like up. the connection that you make that it's probably because Voldemort has a body and so their minds are actually able to connect. Whereas in the past, Harry was connected to Voldemort only through his scar and the pains in his scar. So maybe Voldemort in whatever form he was in still had the slight power to trigger Harry's scar painting but not give these full visions to him. But now that he's grown stronger, they get full visions slash dreams. Very interesting. It is. Well, we'll pick up with Harry next week when we cover chapter two. But I think for now, it's time for us to go ahead and get into MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to Wormtail. Look, he's super helpful and he's giving legs to Voldemort's plan. Oh my god. I just understood what you meant by that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I thought a lot about this because I feel like there's only really one character in this chapter who deserves MVP, uh, who's redeemable. Um, But I think I'm gonna have to give it to Voldemort. Wow. Mainly, mainly, mainly because... He's a very effective planner. He had a goal. He's seeing the goal through. You got to give it to him for the motivation. <laughs> so so MVP in this case is most Voldy person of the week. Yes. Yeah. Our friend Tyler, who's been on the show once or twice, will be very happy with this pick, I think, Laura. I know. Thank you. I'll, <laughs> I'll have Tyler's endorsement. That's all I need. I'm going to counteract a Slytherin MVP with a Gryffindor one. Frank used his wartime bravery uh, and, uh, you know, if he had gone to Hogwarts, it would have been a Gryffindor. The willingness to set aside his police differences, also that trust in the system that intrinsically comes back to him. Just love Frank Price. My MVP goes to Nagini for being milked and providing Voldemort with the sustenance he needs to go on. Because without Nagini, who knows? Voldemort just poof. <laughs> poof. <laughs> nice slugworm reference. <laughs> I'm going to echo Eric and choose Frank Rice because he literally confronted Voldemort face to face and he, he says something like, turn around and face me like a man, which I thought was very brave of him. And he says he goes in to talk to Voldemort because he hears that Voldemort is planning another murder 
of this Harry Potter boy, and he he wants to try to stop. Him. It's very brave and valiant of him. So Frank Bryce gets two this week. Next week, we will discuss Goblet of Fire Chapter 2, maybe Chapter 3 as well. I'm heading up next week's discussion. Are I looked sure? ahead to Chapter 2. It looked <laughs> I mean, a little chapter light. Chapter 1. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so maybe think about reading Chapter 3 as well. We will see uh, later in the week as we really get planning that episode. And now it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, who found the Riddle family dead? And some people did submit the wrong answers this week, but the correct answer, the answer we were looking for, is the maid. Correct answers were submitted by Forrest the 10-year-old who's back, Frank's forgotten kettle, Choo Choo. <laughs> what? what that oh. Frank, I'll mow your lawn anytime, Bryce. Uh, <laughs> Peter the snake milker, moral fiber, PSA, you need 25 grams every day. Will the real bad Barty please stand up? Elpheus <laughs> Doge's dodgy leg. I bet if Draco's carpet matches, oh God, his drapes, it probably looks like Justin Timberlake's Rodman noodle hairdo. What happened to this segment? Dobby had a sock. What happened to this whole segment? Dobby had a sock. Now Dobby has a knife. <laughs> oh. Dahlia loves bagels. Oh my God. I'm crying. Betty B. They're taking after me, clearly. Man, this is... I told you, this is 50% of why I do this show. It's just hearing all these names. Oh, man. <laughs> Shout out to everybody. Somebody submitted as, hey, y'all. Somebody else said it's my birthday today, October 7th. Congrats. And mom who thinks some fan fiction is canon. Yeah, that's me too. And I think some canon is fan fiction. So there we go. <laughs> uh, here is next week's Quizich question. In opposition of his new diet, what did Dudley Dursley throw out the window? Submit your answer to us on the MuggleCast it website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizage. He does not throw Harry out the window. This is not Game of Thrones. Click on Quizage on the main nav. If you're on our website, checking out the new transcripts that are up there. We got a last couple episodes are up there. Check them out. There's a transcripts page. You'll see it. Transcripts are brought to you by uh, listener support. It it. Your support helps us get those transcripts done. Uh, so if you want to support us like Summer does and get a beanie like she just put on, the MuggleCast beanie, Laura's been supporting it today as well. You can head over to patreon.com slash MuggleCast and support us there for between 2 to $10 per month. And depending on what uh, tier you pledge at, you get a variety of benefits. The Slug Club level is the $10 level, and that's where you get a new physical gift every year. And by the way, for $5 a month and higher patrons, um, we will be sending out the Collectors Club stickers in the next few weeks, I think. Actually, just got a notification this morning that the stickers have shipped and are on their way to us. So can't wait to see those and can't wait to get them out to everybody. Uh, you can also support us on Apple Podcasts for just $2.99 a month. You can receive ad-free and early access to MuggleCast right within the Apple Podcast app. If you're enjoying MuggleCast and think other muggles would too, tell a friend about the show. And we would also appreciate if you left us a review in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Threads. Summer, thanks so much for joining us today. You were awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I had a fantastic time. I'm so glad I got to start off Goblet of Fire with all of y'all. Yes. Another exciting chapter by chapter series is ahead. 
All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Summer. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.